0: Shape Moda designs women's trousers to suit everybody's shape to get the perfect fit. Just imagine that as soon as you wear a pair of trousers, they feel like the best piece of clothing ever. Dress for your body shape with Shape Moda and make a huge change in your life now. Go to shapemoda.com and find out which body shape you have. Shape Moda gives you the perfect fit. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Now, the news from America about abortion is not exactly surprising, but it is still devastating. And I am talking, of course, about that Politico scoop by Josh Gerstein and Alexander Ward Uh, which reveal that the Supreme Court in America has voted to strike down the landmark Roe v. Wade decision. And that's according to an initial draft majority opinion written by Justice Samuel Alito, circulated inside the court and obtained by Politico. The draft opinion is, according to Politico, a full-throated, unflinching repudiation of the 1973 decision, which guaranteed... Federal Constitutional Protections of Abortion Rights and a subsequent 1992 decision, Planned Parenthood v Casey, that largely maintained the right. Alito apparently writes in this draft opinion, Roe was egregiously wrong. From the start, we hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. It is time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. And if this goes through as it is, um, and that's very likely in June, it will mean, of course, that each state in America will have the right to uh, legislate for abortion however it sees fit, which will, of course, be devastating for uh, women's reproductive rights there and there's been so much commentary about it a lot of talk on social media and it's frightening for women in America that these rights are being eroded rights that we in Ireland have only so recently managed to achieve and once again it just shows how we can't be complacent about any of it it's sad and shocking to see American society go backwards in this way when we know abortion is healthcare, that it's essential, that it's normal and we also know that banning abortion does not mean abortions won't happen, it only means that unsafe abortions will happen and that women will be in danger. Some of you will know that my mother Anne Ingle had one of those illegal backstreet abortions as a very young woman in London before it was legal there and she could have died during that procedure Um, and People are still talking about their stories. I've seen so many people lately share their stories on Twitter and other places on Instagram and um, Phoebe Bridgers, the singer, uh, you know, very helpfully came out and talked about how she needed an abortion last October when she was on tour. I needed one, as you know, in my 20s. And I know many of you listening have had abortions or have friends who needed that reproductive health care. So all of that's to say we're going to cover this on the podcast next week uh, in a deeper way. But until then, I just wanted to express solidarity uh, with campaigners and all those in Planned Parenthood in America and everyone trying to fight for reproductive justice for women and girls all over the world. It's appalling. And like I say, we'll be taking a, a closer look at that next week and what it means for abortion rights in America. Today, we bring you my conversation with Bonnie Garmus. Our last book club discussed Lessons in Chemistry, which is Bonnie's debut novel. And thank goodness, it was a unanimous rave review. Otherwise, the conversation you're about to hear might have been a bit awkward. The book features the central, unforgettable character, Elizabeth Zott, who is a scientist-turned-TV-chef, a quirky, unforgettable character that millions of readers around the world are about to fall in love with. Her scientific career is stalled by the misogyny and sexism of 1960s America, but Zott is not a woman to take any of this lying down. The book is funny, charming, cheering, and in parts enraging in all the best ways. And this is Bonnie Garmis's first novel published in her 60s. And it was a pleasure to talk to her about the long road to writing success and the excitement of her debut novel becoming an instant bestseller and being turned into a TV series. I began by asking Bonnie about the bad mood that inspired her first novel.
1: It just goes to show you the power of a bad mood. It, it can be productive. Um, what had happened was I'd been in a meeting. It was an all-male meeting. I worked a lot in technology. And, um, and during the meeting, I was presenting some ideas, some concepts for a, a campaign. And no one really said anything. And then a few minutes went by. And then someone else said, presented my ideas as his own. And, and everyone said, those are great. And I said, I literally just said that. I mean, I have it written here. I literally just said, it was like I was talking to, I don't know, it was deaf people. But um, I will say after that meeting, a couple people did apologize to me. Not the person who claimed that he had thought of these ideas, but some other people recognized it was a problem. Nevertheless, I was in such a bad mood. I went back to my desk and instead of working, I ended up writing the first chapter of Lessons in Chemistry. And... um, and that was really because as I sat down to work, I felt like this woman, Elizabeth Zott, was sitting there with me. And I, you know, I felt like she was just looking at me and thinking, saying, you, you, you're not having a bad day compared to my bad day. Let me tell you my story. And you know, I should say, she had been a minor character in a book that I'd started and shelved years earlier, um, but she was very minor. And all I knew about her was that she was a chemist, but she was the host of a TV cooking show. I knew nothing else. And so suddenly she was just like, you got to tell my story. And it was it was great. I So I wrote that first chapter and I thought, now what?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, Elizabeth Zott, I have to say, I think is probably going to go down as one of the greatest fictional characters ever created. She's an astonishing person. She's so... Herself, She's like nobody else I've ever come across. As you said, she's a chemist, but she also presents this cooking show on TV. It's set in the 60s at a time when women in all sorts of ways are, uh, you know, uh, oppressed and put down. And, and um, well, some things haven't changed, but obviously a lot has changed since. And she's she's ahead of her time, essentially. She's a woman in the wrong time and who doesn't understand why women are not treated the way they should be. And um, when loads of other people haven't realized that yet. Yeah. So tell us about her first, about about her as a character. I mean, I want everyone to read the book, but just give us a flavor of her.
1: Well, you know, when I was sitting there writing her, I you know, she sort of had to come to me in in pieces. And one of the reasons why there are so many points of view, I think there are ten, is that I wanted other people to round her out for me. I wanted other people to react to her in good ways or bad ways, just to see how she how she would handle these people. And how and what kind of astonishment or dismay or whatever they had with her. So but when I was thinking about her, I thought, wouldn't it be great? I was writing someone for actually for me to I needed someone to look up to at that point. And um I thought, wouldn't it be great to have this woman who's um she's so scientific and she really doesn't understand why other people don't understand you know, the basics of, of of science, that we are in fact just atoms and molecules, that our our ideas of society are shaped by humans, but they're not based in reality. And that that all these things that keep people down are are all fictions that can be erased. So she doesn't understand why no one else sees this. It's it's obvious to her. And And so it's it's hard for her to enter society and find out that there are women at home who think they have to be there or or that there are men who think that they're better than she is. She really doesn't understand that.
0: And she presents this amazing uh, cookery program, which is basically a chemistry lesson every time, which is why the book is called Lessons in Chemistry. She's in California. She reaches this American population of homemakers who who are being fed this diet of, you know, crap TV. And then suddenly this woman comes along and she's helping them to make the dinner every day. But in the middle of all of that, there's feminism. There's all these different other lessons. And I love at the end, when she's done her chemistry lesson, her cookery lesson, uh, she tells, she does the same thing. Tell us about the sign-off she does at the end of each program.
1: At the end of each program, she looks into the camera and she says, children, set the table. Your mother needs a moment to herself. And I always, I, I, it was one of the very first lines I wrote in the book. I realized that's what she was going to say. And I thought I wanted that line in there because I wanted everyone to know that children were watching this show. Um, Children were learning from Elizabeth Zott, too. And, and she was just sort of a captivating presence on TV. She was, she was, you could not not watch her. Um, And I don't know. So I wanted that line, but I also wanted this idea that she was telling children, respect that woman in the kitchen, you know, and, and, he, and I'm going to be telling you why. <laughs> so um, in a sense, she's, she's sending this message to a, a younger generation. And one of the reasons why I did that was because my own mom was a mom during Elizabeth Zott's era. And that generation of women raised a generation of feminists. And that's where that line came from. <laughs>
0: Yeah, but you know what's really weird about the book as well is even though it's set in the 60s and there's all those constraints that you had in terms of, even in terms of how much chemistry had evolved, because I know your research couldn't be on Google. You had to, what did you use for the research?
1: I used a a textbook I bought off of eBay uh, from the 1950s and I had to confine it to that um, and not go overboard because I I would occasionally write something that I fell in love with. Uh, You know, she'd use, she always uses chemical... Um, equations and things as metaphors and I was explaining a chemical interaction and then I get really depressed spend three days on it because three days later I'd find out well this part of the interaction wasn't discovered till 1969 the whole thing has to go (laughs) Um, but it was it was really fun to actually learn that chemistry I'm not a chemist and I taught myself only the most basic chemistry but I've always been a little afraid of chemistry you know I don't know why I really don't know why.
0: This book makes me want to read the chemistry books, which is something I would never thought I've said in my life. But what I was getting at there as well was, despite the fact that it's from the 60s, I just found so much of it resonated still now, which is kind of depressing, but also very interesting. Like, you have things like, you know, she was... I don't want to give too much away about the book because I really want people to enjoy. But, you know, there's a sexual assault there. There's that thing that you you referenced about ideas being stolen. There is, you know, people not getting credit for things or being dismissed or, you know, as much as society has gone on, it still felt very topical. And that's very strange to me. And did you, you, was that, was that what you were kind of trying to get at as well? Yeah. You know,
1: when I sat down to write this book, I needed reassurance that day that we had actually moved forward because I had no proof that we did. And I actually had to do the research and find out that when my mom was one of those so-called average housewives Women could not sign a check without their husband co-signing it. And they couldn't be pregnant and hold a job. And they didn't have a legal right to their husband's paycheck. There were so many things, so many limits on those women. And most of them, you know, maybe if they had gone to uni or whatever, they still ended up at home. And um, their work was disrespected. And it was underpaid or actually not paid at all. Um, And for my own mom, I mean, she made all of our clothes. On top of everything, you know, and kept house and cooked. But she had been a nurse and she missed that career so much. And she used to talk about it all the time. And I think I look back with some regret because, you know, we go, oh, yeah, yeah, you were a nurse. And now I just feel ashamed because, yeah, she was a nurse and she was really good at her job. And then she became an average housewife and she didn't get that kind of, you know, joy that you get from having a job that you actually feel like you're making a contribution that was counted. So that's yeah, it was there was some looking back there for me and apologizing to my mom.
0: (laughs) What was your mom's name? Mary Mary. So there's a bit of an homage to Mary, I think, definitely from talking to you now, I can feel that. And when I read the book again, which I'm going to do, I'll be thinking of Mary a bit more through it. But also, I mean, I'm really um, interested in what you said there, because sometimes in Ireland, we think that we were worse than anywhere else. Like we had a thing called a marriage bar. I don't know if you know about that, where um, if a woman joined the civil service or as soon as they got married, they had to leave. They had to leave their teaching jobs. They had to leave. their any civil service jobs um, because they weren't married. And so they couldn't work. So that was called the marriage bar. Um, you're reminding me of um, the days when people, a woman, if a woman wanted to rent a television, she had to get a, her husband's signature. You couldn't even go in and, and rent something. So it is really important for us to remember that, yeah. even though we have
1: we have made progress, yeah, because
0: even though people are still stealing ideas and you're going into meetings sometimes and there's all men, which yeah. is still often the case for many people, um, we have made progress. But yeah, I really fell in love with them, um, not just Elizabeth in this book, actually. There are so many brilliant characters. She she marries this incredible man called Calvin Evans, who's a, a really famous chemist, and he falls in love with her mind, which is very ahead of its time as well, because he's an unusual man. She's a beautiful woman, by the way, we should say. She's conventionally very attractive and she's tall and she's got a lot going for her, but she's not interested in any of that. She's not that kind of woman. She doesn't use that collateral, really. That's not her, her way of going about Um, And Calvin Evans, this amazing chemist, just falls in for her, for her, her intellect, which is a a really great relationship, I think.
1: Yeah, they were really fun to to write. And actually, they never got married. But but sorry, yes,
0: I should. That's very important. I don't know. I shouldn't say they got married. uh, Oh, no,
1: no, no, it's fine. It's fine. But they never got married. But uh, she, you know, I think for her, that was the whole thing with him is that he recognized her as as someone who was on par with his intelligence if not at one point in the book he said you know she she has better ideas than I do and and for him for a man to admit that um uh was was really I think I don't think it would have happened but he would have done it because he recognized that in her and and he appreciated her mind for in who she was and I think you know Elizabeth Zott I wanted to create a woman who um You'll never see her fixing her hair in the book. You will never see her standing in front of the mirror and deciding, "I can't wear that. I'm too fat," or whatever. You'll never see it. Um, and I—that's I, who I wanted to create. I wanted someone like that to look up to, you know, and say, "Well, I want to be that person." So, but yeah, I think their relationship for me—I—that was one of my most favorite things to write, actually.
0: And he—he he
1: learns from her, you
0: know. I, I like that. Yeah, it's and there's, there's a lot of tragedy in the book. It's very sad in parts, too. And so, I mean, that's why I feel like it's got absolutely everything. And um that's why I'm going to be telling everyone to go and buy it. But um, <laughs> I, I, I'm interested in that now, what you just said, because... In a way, um, Elizabeth Sott is a bit like someone you planted in the 60s who maybe didn't exist. Would that be fair to say, like, was there a woman in America who wasn't worrying about her, what clothes she was putting on or what lipstick she was wearing or that was moving through the world like that? Or were there women like that and we just don't really hear too much about them?
1: Well, I think, you know, Gloria Steinem was that kind of woman. I really do. I mean, uh, she was just a force from the very beginning and just said no a lot. Um, and she was also very, very attractive. Um, but I made Elizabeth Zod attractive for a reason. I wanted her to have have even more pressure. She only got that TV cooking show because she was pretty, you know, and it's the worst for her. It's, it's horrible because she gets her looks from her father and she despises her father. So for her, um, to suddenly be on television, which was something her father had wanted for himself, and then to look like him was exactly opposite of what she wanted to be and represent. Um, and then I also wanted every single person to judge her on the way she looked all the time, <laughs> you know, because that's what happens. And it's, it's not fair and it's not right. But they were also making um, assumptions about her that were completely false. And it was only based on the way she looked. Not what she would say.
0: Yeah. And I should say, of course, I mean, I I don't know why I'm saying were there people like Elizabeth? Of course there were. There were so many brilliant women feminists who were who were trying to, um, you know, wake everybody else up, but they weren't on mainstream cooking shows. Let's 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 be honest about that one. They weren't (laughs) famous for, you know, for telling people how to cook. And she so she was she is a bit of a kind of an anomaly, let's say.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I really I I wanted to put her on TV because I knew that she would just say whatever the hell she wanted to say and not apologize and I knew that she would drive her very nice producer crazy um, and I wanted that to happen um, because I wanted to have this guy Walter Pine in there um, he never takes her off the air even though she is making his life a living hell and he's, he's in danger of losing his job every minute he, he, and they fight all the time but he at his core he respects her. You know, and and I really wanted to have that tension in the book of that man in a very difficult situation, secretly supporting what she's doing.
0: Well, we have to talk about two other well, three other characters. <laughs> I, like I say, there's so many brilliant ones in the book. We have to talk about Madeline, who is Elizabeth's daughter, who is just a, a great, very gifted young girl who comes out with the best lines and who you know has got this parent who is so unusual but she's unusual too and what where did that relationship how did that come? because I know you have two daughters they're in their 20s now I think
1: yeah but
0: um was there a bit of your own kind of um parenting in there
1: um I wasn't quite as free with uh you know, I think Elizabeth Zott allowed her daughter to explore a little bit more than I allowed my kids to. I'm um, she could she would definitely put Madeline in danger. I probably wouldn't do that with my kids, but I did think it was really important with my kids to let them, you know, choose their own path. You know, they never there was never a thing in our family where you know you have to do this because you know you have to join this choir because you know all the kids join the choir whatever. Um, so I let them pretty much explore, but I think Madeline, um. She came to me as this child. What would a child look like if they had a parent like Elizabeth Zott, who doesn't even bat an eyelash? You know, you want to read that? You can read that. You want to do that? You can do that. I want you to experiment. But Elizabeth is experimenting at parenthood. She is, She didn't intend to be a parent, so she's treating it like, you know, a very long experiment. And she's thrilled with the data. And she doesn't, <laughs> you know, she's 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 just like that. But madeline has a special relationship with the dog 630
0: this is who i was going to ask you about next we have to bring 630 into it tell everybody about the dog because first of all the dog's called 630 right that's that's the first thing you need to know and bonnie has a dog called 99 (laughs) yeah they're
1: not really related but uh that's a different story but but uh 630 came before 99 but 630 um is a thinking dog he doesn't he doesn't talk in the book but he he has his own point of view and i wanted him in the book um to round out all the characters because 630 is the only character who can comment on all the other characters as as almost like a dog anthropologist and i know that we tend to think that we're the smartest species and but you know dogs couldn't possibly do all these things in fact dogs can do a lot of amazing things it's just that maybe we haven't known where to look yet and uh in terms of my own 630 was based this is the only character who's actually based on someone um 630 was based on my dog friday who's since passed on but uh friday was super smart and she had uh come from us from a dog shelter and she'd been very badly abused you know people would ground out cigarettes on her and Um, things like that, and we adopted her. And I was kind of afraid of her at first, but she turned out to be the most gentle, wise dog, and she learned a lot of words. So I could say to her, I can't find my keys. Have you seen my keys? And she would run around and check my pockets and things, like, I'll find your keys, I'll find your keys. I mean, she would know things like that. And we were transferred to Switzerland, and within about a year... Friday picked up German. Um, So she didn't know, you know, fluent German or anything, but she understood all the the commands in German. Um, It seemed like maybe she was picking it up from the other dogs, I don't know. But um, she was just a really, really smart dog. And it made me start to think about how we always underestimate other animals. We think we're the top animal. And I wonder if animals think that we are because we're the only animal destroying the earth.
0: <laughs> sure, and loads of other things, but 6:30 is this amazing voice of reason, of compassion of he sees everything, he has great insights into everything. I'm I mean, really, I was dying for his bits and I'm not really a dog person. But I have to say, I thought, well, let's see what 6.30 thinks about this now. And, you know, he'd have different moments in the book and and the vocabulary, the extent of it, like hundreds of words. And I wondered, because I don't have a dog, is that actually something? But you've obviously experienced that where your dog knew words.
1: Well, she our dog didn't know hundreds, but well, she probably knew well over well over 150. Um, But I did. I had read about a dog um, that knew a thousand words. And this dog was documented. This was a person who was an animal behaviorist and knew a thousand words. There's another dog who apparently on TikTok can read. Um, But yeah, 630 is the character who has this kind of wisdom and it's that sort of wisdom. He communicates with uh, Madeline uh, through the womb. You know, he lays his head against Elizabeth's stomach and he, he sends her messages. He calls her the creature And he sends her messages and they continue to have that relationship um, as she grows. So I always think, you know, if Madeline says anything wise, it's because of
0: 630. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. This podcast is brought to you by ShapeModa.com. Log on today to find your perfect fit. Let's talk a bit more about you because what is another wonderful thing? I don't know if you find it so wonderful, but you are sixty-four writing yeah. this debut novel, right? Yeah. Now I know loads of people listening who harbour the idea of writing, who've been, try, you know, trying away or even just think that's something they may do in the future. It's got, it gives people so much heart to see someone like you at sixty-four writing this incredibly brilliant enjoyable, entertaining book that is now going to be made into an Apple TV series (laughs) starring Brie Larson. I mean, this is the most amazing story. It happened when you're 64. So I would love you to take us back to your five-year-old self in California when you declared you were going to be a novelist, but probably not knowing it might take you 60 years to get there.
1: (laughs) Oh, I did not know that. You know, I was a little afraid of, well, I wrote my first story at my first book at age five, but it was really, really bad. Um, when you were five. come on. No, I did. I wrote my very first book when I was five, and I still have it. Um, it's really embarrassing. It's about a princess. Um, there's no plot. Uh, there's no action. It's terrible. And then I wrote another book when I was 12, and my lovely librarian felt sorry for me and put it in the school library. No one ever checked it out. <laughs> um, I used to check all the time. And then... Um, <laughs> I wrote another, I started another book that had Elizabeth Zod in it as a minor character. Um, but I shelved that one. It wasn't, it didn't feel good. And then I wrote another book that got rejected 98 times. It was way too long and no one wanted to you're read it. You're skipping
0: way too ahead, Bonnie. Tell me where your life and career took you. So you want to be a writer when you're a, a small child. You go to school and uh, high school, I presume. What was life like for you? you? You there's a The town in the book is Commons. It's not your town, but I presume it's somewhere... Based around where you grew up, is it?
1: Yeah, it's kind of. I Commons is on the coast. We were inland um, by about a hundred miles, so it isn't exactly where I grew up. But I remember that time very well and those neighborhoods very well. And I can see, you know, to this day exactly how it looked and the test patterns on the TV and and everything um, and what all the moms wore and what the you know what cars we drove and things like that. It was really, gosh, we never, ever wore seatbelts. <laughs> and, you know, one of us fell out of the car one time on the freeway. So seatbelts are a good invention. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, but, but tell me then about what you did, what was you what way your, your path went? It didn't go into writing particularly. You didn't end up doing that.
1: Well, I did end up becoming a copywriter. I was a science editor for a very short period of time, like four years, um, just out of uni. And then, um, I, I dabbled a li- little bit in um, technical writing, but I, I didn't last at all. Um, it paid really well. But my manager told me that my technical writing sounded sarcastic. And it it was. It was intentional. I was just, I hated the job. Um,
0: I'd like to read those manuals, those Sarky manuals. <laughs> oh, it'd be like, oh,
1: and now, you know, now press the inner key and watch what happens now. I mean, it would just really, it was so, oh, it was so bad. I'm so surprised they didn't fire me. Um, But then um, I had gone to design school and I decided maybe I should go into graphic design. And I really enjoyed it. But as I went around to all these ad agencies and design firms and showed my portfolio, every single creative director said, who wrote this copy? And because I I make up all the copy for my fake ads and... uh, I said, oh, I did that. And I remember this one guy said, he said, you're not a graphic designer. And he said, you're you're a creative director. Um, That's where you need to start. And I said, oh, I didn't know that, thank you. So I started my own business um, and I never worked for an ad ad agency as an employee. I was offered a lot of jobs in ad agencies, but what I wanted to do was stay on the outside and be able to choose the projects I worked on. And also make sure that I never wrote about things like toilet paper. So a lot of my projects, I did a lot of speech writing. I did a million videos. I did a lot of positioning. Um, I also got hired to do corporate parody videos, which was like my dream. <laughs> it was really fun. Um, so we would just make fun of, you know, the executives at their behest, you know, because they'd have to show something at a big company-wide meeting and we'd write skits for them, um, They were terrible actors, so that made it even funnier. Um, But in the meantime, I kept thinking, oh, I really want to be a novelist. But I was realistic and novelists don't really make a living wage. And I was very worried about not making a living wage. So I just started working on books on the side. And I finally, at age 64, sold one.
0: (laughs) So you now live in London. And when did you move to London? Because you move around quite a bit, I think.
1: Yeah, kind of have. Um, I mean, as a child or teenager, my parents, were, we were transferred to South America, you know, to Bogota. And um, as I grew, um, my husband and I were from Seattle, or not originally, um, but we were living in Seattle. Then we were transferred to Switzerland, and then we were transferred to London. So that's how And is how this part I'm,
0: of your husband's job?
1: Yeah, his job. Yeah, he's he was in technology. He still is in technology, but he was working for uh, Google in... Switzerland, also in Seattle, but they transferred us there. Um, And then he quit that job and then we moved to London for a different job for him. And I had the kind of job and career where um, I could really live anywhere and do all my work, which was really great and also really awful because, of course, I didn't always want to be able to (laughs) do all my work. But um, yeah, it followed me. It was... um, It was great. I was very lucky to have clients who said, no, we're going to stick with you. So, okay.
0: so let's go look about your writing. You had one book where Elizabeth Zott featured and that didn't go anywhere. Then you had this other book, which was rejected 98 times, did you say? 98 times. Like, do you have all the rejections, the 98? I do. I kept them all. But like after (laughs) after 88 rejections, like what were you just kind of? How do you cope? Because this is a brilliant lesson for people as well.
1: You know, the thing about writing, and this is where copywriting is really important. Copywriting really helped me to be able to take feedback and criticism. And it also makes you become an expert in things that you don't know anything about. Every time you sit down to write something in copywriting, you're learning about a new product that no one's ever heard of, or a different person that no one's ever heard of. You're never writing what you know. And so... You know, people will often say to writers, just write what you know. And I would say to writers, write what you don't know and have some fun with it. You know, do your research, but don't worry about getting every detail correct. Although I did have two chemistry PhD reviewers on my book, um, both women. But um, yeah, I would say so. That's sort of how it, this whole thing came about. But yes, I got 98 rejections. I decided that I'd go to 100. But the 98th rejection, the woman said to me, um, she was the only one who read 5,000 words. And she wrote me a very stern email. And she said, I love the 5,000 words I read. You have a great voice. But you don't have any business writing a 700-page novel for a debut. When you are a reasonable person and write a reasonable length novel, contact me. I did not contact her again. (laughs) I hope she's seeing and hearing this. But... um, Yeah. So So, it's
0: Bonnie, then you sat down with Elizabeth Zott on your shoulder telling you, you think you've had a bad day. Let me tell you about mine. And you write the first chapter. And what happens next? Did you get a little tingle thinking, I think this might be something? Or did you feel after the 98 rejections? I mean, what am I even doing? Or what what was your mindset at that point?
1: Well, I think, you know, again, it's another copywriting trick. You're so used to People telling you, now I want you to write it like this. And I'm always a little bit of a rebel when it comes to writing. I go, I'm not going to do that. Because that won't entertain people, won't reach people, won't it'll, it will bore people. In copywriting, you're not allowed to bore anyone. Um, so when I sat down to write, I thought, oh, this is probably going to get 100 rejections. In fact, when friends would say, are you working on a book? And I'd say, yes, it's about this woman in California who has a cooking show, but she's a chemist. They go Uh uh-huh um you probably want to keep your job uh you know um i am just i'm not super good at explaining lessons in chemistry to people but honestly everyone was like that sounds terrible what a terrible idea um so i kind of just kept it to myself
0: after a while how much had you written before you started sending it out
1: I didn't ever send it out, believe it or not, because I had the, the biggest stroke of good luck in the world. I had, I had moved to London, I didn't know anyone in London, and my youngest daughter sent me a link to Curtis Brown. And she said, Mom, they have a course there online, it's called Write to the End of Your Novel. I think if you take the course, you'll write to the end of your novel. Well, I said, okay. So I took the course, and I did not write to the end of my novel. I wrote maybe 10 pages, and I still had like 100 to go. So um, I applied for the in-person course, um, and I got in. It was great, but I applied because really I was very lonely in London. I had lived there a couple months. I didn't know anyone. I've moved a million times in my life, and I wanted to meet other writers, and I did, and they were just fabulous, and uh, we had a great tutor – charlotte Mendelssohn. she's a great writer and um and at the end of the three-month course we meet once a week and really you really you know these courses are funny they're great um but they're also funny because you don't really get into anyone's novel you might read a thousand words but that's it so um at the end of our course they give a little cocktail party and they invite the agents some agents from curtis brown to come And, you know, all of us were supposed to practice pitching our novels, but three agents show up and, you know, everyone's crowding around them. But Felicity Blunt came up to me and she said, I love Elizabeth Zott. And I said, oh, well, that's that's great. And I actually thought she had mistaken me for someone else because at first she hadn't said the Elizabeth Zott part. And I thought it couldn't be happening. But months went by. She said, hurry up and finish it. And I I said, well, I'll finish it by June which was a lie. I had no idea how long it was going to take me. But I said, I'll finish it by June. But by April, she called and she said, I'm not going to wait for you to finish it. I'm signing you. And so she signed me on a partial, that crazy woman. (laughs) I'm so grateful to her.
0: That genius, I would say. Sorry. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. I owe her tremendous debt uh, for taking such a big chance on me. She you know, she had only read, I think she'd only read 10,000 words, maybe only 5,000 words. And she signed me on that partial. And that is a leap of faith. And I really didn't want to disappoint
0: her. (laughs) And then, so you have an agent then, which is huge. And so now you don't have to be sending it out to anyone because she's, she's doing that. And then it was a big auction. It was, it it was the dream really, isn't it, it, Bonnie? I mean, it's what you would dream about happening. Tell us what happened.
1: Well, and so I should say, you know, by the way, Felicity came up with the title because my original title was was introduction to chemistry and then it kept slotting at the Frankfurt book fair as nonfiction. And so Felicity called me the night before Frankfurt and she goes, how about lessons in chemistry? And I said, great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, it was a dream for me. I, I didn't quite believe it. Neither of us had any idea how the book would do. Um, really, we were both completely, she said, you know, let's just go in it and we'll just see and, you know, hang in there. And she called me 24 hours later and she said, oh my God, um, there is a huge amount of interest in this book. And Felicity and I have a good rapport and we like to kid. And so I thought maybe she was kidding, but then it turned out she wasn't. And um, boy, you really want someone like that by your side in an auction because she is smart and she is tough and she really helped me through that time because it was very, very stressful. <laughs> um, I I can't say enough good about
0: Felicity Blunt. Yeah. But then so yeah. you got a huge deal, let's say, can we say?
1: I yeah, I got a huge de- I uh, yeah, I did. I it was it was huge. And then in the middle of the American auction, Felicity called me and said, oh, there's been there's been interest from Hollywood and I said now nah, Felicity now I know you're kidding how's that possible they don't even have the book and she said yeah they do you know we have things things called scout spawning and that's how come everyone has the book and then boy within two weeks I was meeting with all these Hollywood people on Zoom and they were all trying to convince me to produce the book with them I I couldn't believe it and having Felicity there. She also got me a film agent and an American agent at that time. But having the three of them guide me through this was absolutely invaluable. I couldn't have done it without them.
0: I, I mean, it is, like I said, just the dream. Bree Larson's gonna star in the TV series. I mean, reading the book, I can just see it. I mean, it's it's going to be so brilliant because it's such a visual as well. Like, there's so much going on there. And then you got the 60s vibe and the clothes <laughs> and the cars, and it's just and the music, it's just gonna be fantastic. Um so how has your life changed? Well, I quit copywriting um, completely. Yay.
1: Um, yeah, I was thrilled to do so. That wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, oh gosh, that career's over. It's more like, yay. Um, so no, that <laughs> that was great. Um, and how my life has changed. Well, you know, I, honestly, during COVID and things, my life was exactly the same as it was before. I work alone. I work in silence. Um, the only difference was, that my husband, home with COVID, you know, times, it was sit, now sits three feet from me, and he wears these enormous headphones all the time because I read everything out loud, and so it it just looks like, you know, I don't know, the poor man. I mean, he's he's my husband's wonderful. He's he's like a true feminist, um, and uh, yeah, it, I don't know. I'm still doing exactly the same thing, but. Now I have all these book duties, which are really great. Like this podcast is just amazing. You know, it's really great. It really is. So. But it's it's a lot of work.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. It's, it's a new job for you. But I mean, you have the, the the security and comfort of knowing this is you got that deal that you're secure financially, all those things, and that must be be wonderful. Um, I need to talk to you about a couple more things from the book because there's what there's so many um great lines and moments. Um, like there's a great character called Harriet who, it comes into Elizabeth Zott's orbit and really changes Harriet's life in in a, in a massive massive way. Harriet's living this terrible life across the road from Elizabeth with this horrible man and because she comes into Elizabeth's life her life just gets better and and that's the effect Elizabeth has if you understand how wonderful she is she can change your life as well that's what I sort of feel about her she's sort of there's a Mary Poppins type feel about, about Elizabeth actually that I love but um At one point, you you talked about uh, Elizabeth having parenting as a sort of an experiment. So she buys the Mr. Spock book, which my mum had as well. My (laughs) mum had eight children. Your mum had it. And and, and it's just one line that never occurred to me. You know, Harriet says a man writes a book of things he has no first hand knowledge of, i.e. childbirth. And it becomes a massive bestseller overnight, practically. I mean, it had never occurred to me that that's what happened. Even all the times my mother would mention Mister Spock, Mister Spock, I never thought, what's he doing writing the most definitive childbirth book and parenting book that's ever done? So, I mean, there's things like that. It, what was are those revelations? Things you wanted to get into the the script, Yeah, I mean,
1: the book. When I was writing that line, actually, I was thinking, why did that happen? Why? Why was it Doctor Spock? Why wasn't it Mrs. Spock? Mrs. Spock, you know, yeah. she's. I'm pretty sure she did all that. So I, I don't, you know, I. And he's in there also because he turned out to be this great rower. Um, But, um, yeah, I'm curious about stuff like that.
0: Well, it's brilliant. And the other thing you mentioned it there is the rowing. And I know you're a rower, too. So rowing is a huge motif throughout. Um, I learned about something called an erg, which I had never, ever heard about before, which is a sort of a practice rowing. Machine. it's a rowing machine yeah and um you obviously are very familiar with that but a lot of us wouldn't be and and Elizabeth Zott becomes sort of accidentally because Calvin her husband is massively into rowing so she yeah. gets into rowing and it turns out she's very good at it um she's sort of good at everything really Elizabeth Zott there's not much she can't do uh, tell us about rowing in your life and in the book
1: well I found uh rowing when I was in my 30s actually um I wish I'd known about it in college, but I never went to a school that had a rowing program. They're really, they're very far and few uh, between for women back then. But um, I discovered it when I was 35 or so. I was standing in Seattle on our porch. We just bought a house and and I saw these this thing going by and I said to my husband, what is that called? And he said, that's called rowing. And, uh, you know, because he'd, of course, grown up in a different place and was very familiar with it. And I went down a week later, and I joined a beginner crew and learned to row. I just fell in love with it. And the great thing about rowing, um, you do it your whole life. I mean, I know a lot of people in their 90s who row. Um, you, it's, it's a really great exercise, but it's also extremely painful. Um, but there's so much camaraderie around it, and there's so much rowers have this attraction to each other. Um, I guess it's, you know, it's shared suffering or whatever it is. But you do have to row exactly the same as everyone else. And so if you have a hot dog in the boat, you know, that person's not going to work out. Um, To row well, you really have to put your ego somewhere else and really cooperate. And so cooperation is one of the themes of the book. Um, Things that we have in common, commonality is one of the things of the book. And that's why rowing is in there also. It was the only thing I didn't have to research. So I... I really wanted something I could just write without looking it up.
0: <laughs> you also mentioned your own husband who, and you said he's a true feminist. And so is there a bit of um, him in Calvin Evans who who falls in love with Elizabeth's mind? Do you feel that you had, a, a, you know, as some women don't have, and sort of an equal kind of relationship in, in every sense?
1: Well, I will say, you know, at first our relationship was not equal. In fact, Elizabeth Zott's name, her last name, comes from a a diner in California called Rosati's. Everyone still calls it Zots. It's still there. And we had our first major fight there because my husband, my boyfriend at that time, we were arguing, as we always did, about politics or the space program or whatever. We never had arguments about our relationship. We had arguments about political things. And he said, I had no idea when I met you that you would have so many opinions. And I went, oh, You shouldn't have said that. (laughs) Um, Anyway, luckily, he later when we after I had stomped out, (laughs) um, uh, he realized, oh, my God, what have I said? Of course, she should have her own opinions. Um, So, yeah, it was kind of a that was probably the, the best thing that could have happened to us right then, because I think, you know, he realized. No, she's she's my equal.
0: And I I just love that um, Zot's name came from that moment. This is just beautiful. When he read the first draft, he went,
1: you named her Elizabeth Zot. (laughs) I know where that comes
0: from. (laughs) Um, And like, again, just a couple of other things that I I just well, I loved loads. So but um, there's great insights into workplaces as well. you know, annoying things about workplaces, but you obviously have lots of opinions about. And you say at one point, idiots make it into every company they tend to interview well I mean oh and that's what I love about this book there's so many lines like that that's why I need to read it again because yeah. I almost need to take so many out but was it it was it enjoyable to kind of put those observations that you've had about the world into the book
1: yeah I, I, I to be honest I think my favorite chapter in the entire book is the one written from man- management's point of view you know and they're, <laughs> they're 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 just like oh my god you know all these people and half of them are just idiots and we know it but you know they got in here and now and then they hire other idiots because they, they want somebody who's dumber than they are. And it just reminded me of so many executives I've worked with who, who would go, oh my God, these people that I'm working with, I can't believe how dumb they are. you know And, and it, I mean this is really what a lot of top management is saying, but I have to say there are a lot of idiots also in top management. So um, there you go. But yeah, that part for me, writing the workplace, always really fun
0: (laughs) and and now as well the other thing that's there a lot uh in a more sort of serious way is childhood trauma it's 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 in i mean i think probably most in some ways every character is touched because a lot of us are touched by that in various different ways and then it's about overcoming i suppose overcoming that putting it behind us learning to leave it behind, learning to get stronger, all of those things. And I, I wondered about your take on that yourself, um, whether you've had any major childhood trauma that you had to overcome uh, or parenting stuff, because there's a lot of bad parents in this book as well. Um, And Elizabeth's not the best parent in some ways, but, you know, she's, no, she's great. She's a little free. So, so yeah. tell me about that.
1: Well, a lot. I mean, I have to say, you know, none of I I, I write from experience, but there, these aren't necessarily my experiences. But I do... um. I do know a lot of women who have been sexually assaulted. And one of my friends was the rape nurse at San Francisco um, Medical Hospital. Um, and I went to pick her up one night from work and she had just processed 10 more women who had been raped that night. And that really struck me that this this was so, it was such a given that these You know, that, oh, okay, well, 10 more women. And a lot of times their kits were never processed. You know, they they never, the police never went after, you know, the the rapist. If they did, they got off. Um, But mostly the women weren't believed. And that's the part I, I couldn't let go of that. Um, I couldn't let go of that. And I, yeah, it was, it was really hard for me to write some of the scenes in this book because I know that they happen. And I don't want people to think, oh, you know, we're in this new era where this doesn't happen. This happens constantly. And I just think, wow, are we ever going to get past this? Are we ever going to have respect, not just parity, but respect for humans as human beings? And Elizabeth Zott is a humanist. And humanism believes that people are equal. And she it, it, it's all about self-responsibility, self-policing. And... I kind of hope more people will think about becoming a humanist, <laughs> you know, because that is what it's about. It's about cooperating with people, getting along with people, recognizing that woman is your colleague. Respect her.
0: Yeah. And that other thing about parenting and that Philip Larkin line, they fuck you up, your mom and dad, they may not mean to, but they do. There's a lot of parents who fucked up characters in, in this book. So why was that important for you?
1: Well, you know, I should say I had the I had the world's greatest parents. I mean, they were my parents were really great and I'm one of four girls, Um, but I, I did see, you know. I've, I've seen a lot of parenting. You know, when you're when you're a mom and you're kind of observing all the other moms, and there are some moms who are saying, "No, you have to do this, or you you must do this, or or whatever." And I think, oh my gosh, you know, I don't ever want to have that kind of relationship with my kids where I'm telling them what they what they have to become or do or anything like that. I want them to grow up and be who they want to be. That's really what the whole book is about: is figuring out what you want to do, and that part is really hard figuring it out. But yeah, for me, um, I had, by the way, a really, really bad elementary school teacher. So Mudford is sort of based a little bit, not not really, honestly, that much. But I'd say 20 percent of Mudford came from my experience in first grade. This is Madeleine School,
0: right? <laughs> Just to let people know who who don't uh, who haven't read it yet. So the, yeah. the school in it is is close to home for you.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, there are so many good teachers out there, but I have friends who are teachers. And one of the things they've said to me is the worst part of their job is sometimes that the bad teachers, they have tenure or they they can't get rid of them. And so there they are ruining lives one after the other (laughs) year after year. And it makes it hard for the really good teachers um, as well. So, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, Yeah. In terms of parenting and, and school and everything, I I really think that we could be doing a lot better, a lot better. And we we really need to, to trust our kids and we need to have really, really good schools and, you know, respect our
0: teachers. Uh, now, not to go on about it too much, but we, let's go back to the 64-year-old debut novelist thing, okay. part of it, because, you know, it's it's great in loads of ways. And it's, I mean, you come to writing with that wealth of experience behind you. You've had decades of observing because you're a writer. You were always a writer all the time, just hadn't had a book published, but you were, you were your brain was a writer. You were observing, you were noticing, you were remembering. I'm sure you were jotting everything down. And, um. So what, what are the good bits and the, and the sort of less good bits about getting all this success at 64? What, what, how are you praising it? Well,
1: you know, for me, it's so funny because people say, you know, you're 64. How's it feel? And I think, well, it feels exactly the same, I think, as it would feel at 30, except I don't have the pressure. At 30, you go, uh-oh. Now I've got to write another book it's going to be just as good. You know, um, there are all those lists 30 under 30, 40 under 40, but the thing about being a writer is no one, you know, and they they're not going to remember your name. Um, they when you open a book you don't know how old that author is who's written it. It's never a factor. It's the writing that has to carry it. It's the characters that carry it. I'm not, you know, a super athlete, so It's not like, oh, she can't run the race anymore, you know, Or and I'm not, you know, a movie star. Oh, wow, you know, she really got a lot older. You know, those poor women, those poor people. No, I'm just a writer. I'm behind the scenes, and you're never going to see me. Um, And let's face it, people are going to go into a bookstore, and they're going to say, I want lessons in chemistry. And they'll say, "Um, who's it by? And they won't know. And that is (laughs) fine with me. That is fine with me.
0: Is I don't it, believe know? that. I think your name is going to become like you know Margaret Atwood and all these oh. other people that people are going to remember. Because I'm presuming, Bonnie, that you are writing another book.
1: I am. I am. Tell and me am. about
0: that as much as you can, if you can.
1: Well, I, I'm. I'm probably not going to tell you too much because I, I. I describe it the same way I describe lessons in chemistry to my friends. Oh, you know. So there's this cooking show and this chemist, and they're like, "God, don't do that." <laughs> um. So it's sort of it. Yeah, I probably. I probably won't say anything about it because um, the kind of writer I am, I'm very exploratory. I don't write from an outline. And I just sit there and I put people in different situations and then I see what starts to gel. And the story starts to unfold for me. So it's a very odd process. I do wish I wrote from an outline and I do wish I knew where I was going all the time. But you miss a lot if you have a straight path. So... Yeah.
0: yeah see wise words and that's why people need to read this book there's so much wisdom as well as laughs and fun and things that fire you up and you know just just really wonderfully wonderfully done uh, I can't wait to read I'd read I'd read all your copywriting I'd read all your fake ads that you did for your project I'd read anything by you I I honestly I haven't enjoyed a book as much in a long time and I'm I'm just so grateful for you coming on to talk to me about it.
1: Well, I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you so much. This means a lot to me. Believe me, believe me. It's oh, incredible. Well,
0: for- I hope you'll come back again to tell us more when you have the next book done, I, because um, you've got a fire in your belly now, Bonnie. Like, are you kind of like fired up with this?
1: I am. I am. I mean, gosh, this is a once in a lifetime chance. I'm not going to squander it. Absolutely not. <laughs> and I, should and I, tell, I bet, you're, you know, I, everybody out there, don't squander your chance and just keep going. Don't give up. Just don't give up. That's all it takes. It's just endurance. That's all it is.
0: Just like the rowing, getting yeah, on your yeah. machine. <laughs> yep. yep. <laughs> Thanks very much for coming. Thank on the you. Women's Thanks Backfest. for having me. That was Bonnie Garmis there, and we're so grateful for her coming on. The book is brilliant, as I think you can gather. It's called Lessons in Chemistry, and I I can actually guarantee you will enjoy it. And uh, if not, do email me to tell me I'm wrong. But I don't think any of you will. And that's all we have time for. Do get in touch with us on social at it Women's Podcast or by email the Women's Podcast at irishtimes.com. Thanks to Bonnie Garmus, as I said, and uh, the podcast is produced by me, Rosie Ningle, by Suzanne Brennan and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time.